0: People, when they can make money without doing fraud, they would prefer to do it, because most people actually have integrity. It's not something you need to teach people.
1: Hey, everyone. This is Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast, and it's a special episode the coronavirus dominates the news and we as the kickback team thought about whether we should even air our corruption podcast in these unusual and uncertain times. Relatedly, Matthew Stevenson blogged about whether to keep blogging about corruption in times of COVID-19. We will link to that in the show notes. From social media, we gathered that there is a demand for podcasts, also the ones that do not directly deal with corona. So we decided to keep airing Kickback in the hopes that it provides some form of stress relief for you. The interview you're about to hear was made possible thanks to Global Integrity, who invited Christopher Starke and myself to take the train to London and interview three brilliant minds of corruption research. Heather Marquette, Paul Heywood and Mushtaq Khan. Unfortunately, Heather could not be there. But we hope to be able to record a podcast with her very soon so we sat down with paul and Mushtag for several hours and talked about corruption in the unlikely event that you don't know who paul and Mushtag are here are very brief intros paul heywood is the sir francis hill professor of european politics at the university of nottingham and among many other things too long to name here the academic lead of global integrity of the anti-corruption evidence program ACE. Professor Mushtaq Khan is a professor of economics at SOAS University London and executive director of the divid funded anti-corruption evidence research consortium. Since we recorded several hours of material, we decided to make this a two-parted podcast. So what you're about to hear is the first of two parts with Mushtaq and Paul. We hope you enjoy it.
2: Welcome to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. My name is Christopher Starke. My name is Niels Kirbis And today we are delighted to be in London and have two honorable guests, Paul Hayward and Khan. Thank you so much for being here. It's a Pleasure. Thank you. Well, usually we, we start our interviews with a short introduction of what got you interested in corruption and uh, maybe pick out one major milestone that made you
0: become uh, hooked by the topic of corruption? I started being interested in corruption right as a PhD student. My PhD was on trying to figure out why developing countries were, almost all of them, extremely corrupt, but some of them performed much better than others. And so I started off comparing East Asian countries, which we talking about now 30 years ago, Um, which were then emerging as the tigers of Asia, Um, and contrary to what a lot of economists were focusing on, whether they were free trade or whether they were statist, my concern was that they all appeared to have very poor rule of law, very high levels of corruption, and yet were developing very fast. And South Asian countries were not, and many African countries were not. And so this simplistic idea that, you develop because you have a good rule of law and you have low corruption and you have a very accountable democracy and so on didn't fit the evidence and my fascination with this topic hasn't stopped since then it's become much richer so it's not saying actually that corruption doesn't matter it matters hugely governance matters hugely but the ways in which most people think about governance and corruption in developing countries is fundamentally wrong. And so that has been the driving force behind my interest in economics, in industrial policy, in property rights reform, governance reform and anti-corruption. And all of this has been tied together with a different view of how development happens from the way in which most economists think of um, development.
1: Could you maybe outline why you think the, the common view is wrong?
0: I think the common view is, is wrong in, on many counts, but it's fundamentally wrong because it doesn't take into account the fact that development changes the structure and organization of societies, and more advanced, more productive societies are not just slightly richer versions of poorer societies, they are organically different. The ways in which organizations work the capacities of organizations and the relationships between organizations is fundamentally different in an advanced country relative to a developing country. So the difference that most economists would look at in terms of you know less developed and more developed is how much capital you have, what is your skill level, um, what is the uh, uh, capacity of your bureaucracy. These, to me, are second-order problems. The first-order problem is a developing country is less well-organized than an advanced country. And that's something that economists don't really capture very well with their tools. Some institutional economists have begun to do that, and I'm, in that sense, an institutional economist. But even most institutional economics sees a kind of linear progression between weaker property rights and stronger property rights, weaker governance and stronger governance, whereas the way I look at it is that these societies have different configurations of power. Who is powerful is different and what the powerful want is different and what the the capacities of the powerful are different. So the description of what are your powerful organizations, what are their capacities, what do they want, is very different in a developing country from an advanced country. And therefore, they don't behave in the same way. It's not just that you don't have Institutions or rules, your organizations are different. And I think we haven't really given enough attention to organizations and we focus too much on institutions. And most economists still make that error. Even when they go into institutional economics, they're simply looking at the rules and not at who is following the rules and do they want to follow those rules. Do they have the capacity to follow those rules? What are the organizations in your society is supposed to automatically follow the institutions? If you create good institutions, we assume that you will have good organizations, high capability, modern, high capacity, export oriented, and we don't ask where do these come from? How how are these built? What is the historical process through which they emerge? And if you have a society where most of your organizations are very low capability, they have no capacity of engaging in global markets, they have no capacity of organizing themselves very productively, then those organizations will want to capture resources in ways that we would describe as corrupt. They would want to violate rules. They will want to stay under the radar screen. And no amount of good governance reforms will change that. So... My approach to anti-corruption and governance is therefore a very incremental, slow process where the institutions change in line with what the organizations can deal with. And that is the only way in which sustainable development happens.
2: Great. We are already getting into the details of the the anti-corruption approach. So maybe take a step back and turning to Paul. What is your major milestone in becoming a corruption researcher?
3: Well, I guess in in my case, it goes all the way back to when I was an undergraduate student um, studying at the University of Edinburgh back in the late 1970s. And I wrote an undergraduate dissertation on the politics of southern Italy, il mezzogiorno. And part of what it was trying to do was was to understand this, this absolutely well-established divide in Italy between, you know, the, the more backward south, as, as it was traditionally understood. Of course, it's the, the site of Edward Banfield's classic A Moral familism. And the relationship between why the south was, was was particularly constrained compared to the north of Italy and in writing that dissertation I, I came across and started working on issues to do with links between mafia and corruption and political processes etc without at that time in the in, in late 1970s having any sense of uh, corruption as an issue which would become so dominant later on. Because when then the whole manipulite scandal tangent happened in the early 1990s by which time I was uh, a fully fledged academic working in, in a university interestingly of course the centre of that was Milan precisely right in the north of Italy supposedly the, the good bit where, where these things weren't supposed to happen and, and of course it revealed that the kind of corruption of the political system was so endemic, was so baked into the whole structure of Italian politics that our traditional understandings right there and then were being challenged in terms of what, what leads to, to corruption, what, what makes, you know, corruption being seen very much as a, a factor of developing societies developing countries where you couldn't talk of Milan in in those kinds of terms and I think right from the outset it challenged us to start moving away from those kind of traditional ideas associated with people like Samuel Huntington and, and others of corruption being sometimes a price worth worth paying as as part of the kind of the developmental process of modernization and so on, or simply being a factor of, of developing societies, to raising the question, well, actually, corruption isn't necessarily connected to stages of development at all. There's all kinds of... of Corruption going on across, across the piece. And, and that led me to start working very much on corruption in established democracies as opposed to corruption in, in developing societies. Um, and that interest not only is maintained now, however many years later, but I think actually increasingly reinforced by ever more revelations about the nature, extent, types, uh, forms of, of corruption that, that we see on, on a daily basis, which suggests that you know it doesn't mean that the, the ideas about developing societies were wrong. It means that we were wrong to suppose that development democracy is somehow the cure or the antidote to, to corruption. So, great. Thanks for the introduction.
2: And one reason we are here is because uh, both of you are project leaders of the ACE. Could you maybe tell us what the ACE is? Maybe we start with you, Paul, this time.
3: Okay, so the Department for International Development in in the UK is is one of the major funders um, of overseas aid. It has a, a very significant budget uh, which currently stands at about £14.7 billion pounds a year. And it's one of the, the UK is one of the few countries that actually hits the, the 0.7% of gross national income target for overseas development assistance expenditure. This was a, a United Nations commitment way back in the, the mid-1970s. But as of now, there are still very, very few developed countries that actually hit that target so the u k spends a lot of money on overseas development assistance, but there was concern which emerged a few years ago that there wasn 't really sufficient knowledge within the Department for International Development as to what actually happened with with the money it was spending there wasn 't sufficient uh, evaluation systems in place to to see whether it really had a good effect and there was a strong sense that a lot of this money was was actually being lost to Corruption, And so there were a couple of really major reports commissioned by the Independent Commission for Aid Impact, which which is a, a UK body which looks at the use of aid expenditure. And they were very, very critical of uh, DFID uh, for not having sufficient awareness of, of how its overseas expenditure was actually being implemented on the ground and how much they were losing to corruption. And so... In part, as as one of a series of responses to to these reports, uh, DFID developed the idea of an anti-corruption evidence programme and so developed the the business plan for looking at precisely these questions of what actually happens when you spend uh, significant sums of money on overseas development aid. And so they created ACE, the Anti-Corruption Evidence Programme, which had two elements to it. One part was a, a research uh, Partnership Consortium, uh, which was uh, won by, by S- the School of Oriental and African Studies led by Mushtaq Khan, and Mushtaq will be able to talk in, in a moment about the the specific focus of, of what is SOAS-ACE. And the other part was uh, a more sort of open grants competition where they wanted to attract um, leading researchers on corruption to address this question of, you know, what is what's the most effective ways of understanding how to fight corruption in the DIFID priority areas? And so this was a, an open competition for international researchers from around the world to, to bid towards. Initially, uh, the British Academy was the partner that Diffid worked with for the first uh, two years of, of the program. And then more recently, they've moved to working with global integrity. And I've been the programme director, I guess, of, of the, both the British Academy and the Global Integrity Elements. And what we're doing is trying to attract top quality research from around the globe with four distinctive features, I think, which mark out ACE, Anti-Corruption Evidence Programme, as being different to what's gone before. The first is The focus is very much on anti-corruption. It's not on corruption itself. It's not about explaining corruption. It's not about trying to understand the impact or the costs of corruption. It's about anti-corruption. Secondly, it's to do with focusing on real-world problems. It's not about concepts. It's not about theories. It's about actual issues on the ground. Thirdly, it's focused on the politics of anti corruption, not just technical barriers, but trying to understand the contextual factors that make reform possible or not. What are the barriers? What are, how do you understand the politics of where corruption is taking place? And fourthly, it's about demonstrating impact. It's about showing what actually makes a difference, what works, by trying to measure the actual reduction of corruption incidents of corruption issues. And that means moving away from these generic top-down national level approaches to much more focused local level problem-driven approaches. And that's been critically important to what ACE is trying to do and what marks it out from many other approaches to tackling corruption
1: great i think it would be very interesting for us to unpack these four elements but before we do so i think it would be great if you mushtaq could outline briefly maybe first similarities between soas and gi ace but then maybe also differences but also maybe give a short introduction into what soas ace does and
0: so I think um, the entire ACE program is driven by these principles, That it's anti-corruption, it has to be politically sensitive and feasible, and it has to make an impact. I think that's shared across the whole program. The SOAS ACE part of it is a research partnership consortium, which means all of our projects are linked together, and they share a common theory of change and a common approach to addressing the anti-corruption. We focus on mainly three countries, uh, Nigeria, Tanzania, Bangladesh, but we may add further countries. It's driven by a vision that the reason why a lot of anti-corruption has failed in developing countries is that it has been informed by an assumption that most people in developing countries are following rules, and a few people who are powerful or greedy are breaking the rules. And if you can identify who these people are with transparency reforms, and if you can then force accountability on them through accountability reforms, then by punishing those people, you will get society back on track, and you will move towards a full rule of law, right? So the assumption is that, yes, there are all kinds of violations, but they are reasonably close to being rule-following societies. And we start off with an understanding of developing countries as organizationally very different organisms. And that explains to us why a lot of rule enforcement activity of the traditional type has failed. The typical developing country is not rule following in the formal sense. 70 to 80 percent of the economy is what we describe as the informal sector. What does that mean? It means that. The vast majority of your organizations, productive organizations, have such low productive capabilities that they can't even register themselves as entities. They don't pay taxes. They don't follow health and safety rules. They don't follow employment rules. They don't follow localization rules. They follow no rules. And it's not because most of them are corrupt and thieving. It's simply because they don't have the capacity to follow a formal rule structure which has been constructed with the assumption that you have high-capability organizations in your society. Secondly, the powerful big organizations in developing countries also don't follow rules because unlike advanced countries where you have many powerful organizations and they are doing thousands of transactions every day with each other and they are high-capability organizations, powerful organizations in advanced countries generally want to have a rule of law in their own self-interest, because without that, they can't perform. They have to make faceless, nameless transactions thousands of times a day, and they can't do that on the basis of who knows who and and so on. If you look at the typical developing country, the number of powerful organizations, the big companies, are few in number. They all know each other. They know the politicians, the bureaucrats. They actually don't need a rule-based system to perform they can do their transactions on an informal basis. So I'm buying cement from you and iron from someone else. I know you are corrupt. You know I am corrupt. But we can still transact with each other because we have informal ways of enforcing our contracts. If you don't give me my cement, I will not take you to court necessarily. Even if I take you to court, I will enforce it informally by getting the judges and the police to harass you. It doesn't really matter what is on your contract I have the capacity to get my resources from you, you know that, so you don't cheat me. So that is why a lot of rule-violating businesses happily do business with each other in developing countries in a way they couldn't in an advanced country. And the third component which makes them different is that the politics of developing countries is different because political parties simply don't have enough tax revenue to promise voters that if you elect us, We will spend the tax revenue in a way that will benefit you. And so the politics in developing countries is by and large what we call client list. You target resources off-budget to specific constituencies, and this is all political corruption. So when you add these three things together, you have structurally corrupt politics, you have large informal economies, you have a productive sector which is rule-violating, everybody is breaking some rules. There is almost nobody in a developing country who is following every rule. So therefore, when you try to have an enforcement-based approach and you say, we have now identified this businessman or this politician or that has broken the rules, what happens? You take them to court and you find that nobody is coming to give evidence because everybody who is supposed to give evidence have themselves broken rules you find the judge is a rule violator, the police is a rule violator, the politician is a rule violator. So actually this whole way of thinking about anti-corruption fails completely. And all that happens in the end is that you and taxpayers in advanced countries who are supporting this kind of anti-corruption, setting up anti-corruption commissions, setting up police reforms and rule of law reforms, all that is happening is that the ruling power, the ruling party uses these instruments as a way of picking up the opposition and locking them up. And indeed, the opposition is corrupt. But so is the ruling party, except that no one will pick up the ruling party people and put them in prison, because everybody is rule-violating. I think once you understand this organic nature of developing countries, then the fundamental question is, what does anti-corruption mean here? Because corruption is also destroying the very processes of building up those capabilities and those capacities, which will ultimately create a real demand for anti-corruption. You will have a real demand for anti-corruption when you have enough organizations in your society which need a rule of law in their own interest. And they must be powerful enough to demand that. And when they are powerful enough to demand that and they have the capacity to pay for it, at that point, The kinds of pressures that normally we think will work, which is public pressure and persuasion and punishment, that starts pushing societies into rule enforcement on a generalized scale, which is what we call a rule of law. Now come to the question of the actual developing countries that we work in. They're so far from a rule of law. If you define a rule of law, that there are rules that everybody will follow or be forced to follow, regardless of their power, regardless of their position. This is not the situation in developing countries. There are rules, the rules are enforced, but the powerful enforce the rules on the less powerful. The ruling party enforces it on the opposition. The big company which borrows money can get away with not repaying it to the bank. But the small person who borrows a small amount of money is forced to pay it back to the bank, even if they go bankrupt and even if they commit suicide. So the typical developing country society is one that we describe as rule by law, not rule of law. There are rules. The rules are enforced, but they're enforced asymmetrically based on who is powerful and who is not powerful. In that context, what we say is that if you want to do anti-corruption, We are looking for this intersection of a feasible intervention. Feasible means that some of the powerful in whichever sector, and by powerful, we don't mean necessarily the prime minister or the top people. The powerful could be those who have the capacity to implement in the sector that we are working in. They must want, some of them must want the intervention that we are supporting It must be feasible in that sense that there is a market for this idea. Somebody wants to enforce this in their own interest who have the capacity to enforce it. And the second requirement is that that enforcement should result in a socially desirable outcome. In other words, we are not just supporting what the powerful in that sense of having the capacity to implement want. We are supporting them to do something which in their own interest is also aligned with development the creation of jobs, the creation of opportunities, the creation of better health outcomes and better educational outcomes. If we can work with some of the people who are working in these sectors, skills providers, people who are investing in the power sector, doctors, teachers, and figure out ways in which these powerful sectoral actors can be incentivized with feasible rule changes to deliver better development outcomes in their own interest, and hence the feasibility, then the SOAS-ACE says this is a feasible thing for us to research, and then we generate the evidence showing how it might happen. So our projects are very sector and country specific. We look at what kinds of evidence support an intervention which we think will reduce corruption, but which will also have these two other things which most other anti-corruption research doesn't have. They will have a specific group of people who have the capacity to implement it, who want to implement it in their own interest, and which will then deliver a good development outcome. So this intersection of impact and feasibility is what we are looking at, at a very small scale of sectoral activities. And our theory of change is that by building up these pockets where, in their own interest, powerful people begin to follow rules, You eventually create a distribution of organizations in society where there are enough powerful organizations who will finally want a rule of law. And actually, if you look at it historically, this is how anti-corruption really happens. If you look at how the UK, how Japan, how South Korea, how all of these countries historically have moved towards a rule of law, it wasn't one sudden event with an anti-corruption commission coming in and saying, now we have a rule of law. It's the powerful in these societies fixing rules in their own interest, and that becoming broad-based enough. And at a certain point, suddenly you find a rules-based society. That's a long path in developing countries. There are no shortcuts, but we can really do very feasible and effective anti-corruption by understanding that dynamic process through which change happens.
1: Thank you very much. This was uh, very insightful, and maybe one way to follow up on that would be to ask Paul in which way you are similar to Soas and what you've learned from them, but maybe where you also differ. Maybe I don't know if you both have some disagreements that you would like to share or where you've been going back and forth about, but essentially where they're different, where they're similar.
3: So there are there's clear parallels in in terms of the emphasis on. Trying to identify feasible reforms with a, a very strong emphasis on on you know, understanding the, the the politics that are in play in any given setting, and, and there's absolutely no point in, in pushing for reforms that cannot be enacted because you know power is concentrated in particular hands. So if you you know if, if you say you need a, a more effective judiciary, but the judiciary is, is captured, then that's just a pointless recommendation. So to that extent, there, there there's a lot of of overlap where there are differences. I mean, clearly the soas ACE partnership is focused very strongly on the three countries of, of Bangladesh, uh, Nigeria, and Tanzania, um, and is therefore producing some really fantastically in-depth work in understanding what's going on in 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 those countries and is looking at particular sectors as well. The The GIA's approach is, because it's a a responsive mode approach, where we identified three core themes in in what we were looking for, but were quite happy to respond to what researchers came to us with, we have a, a rather wider range of areas that we're looking at. So the three core themes that we identified were first trying to understand better the international architecture which supports a lot of the corruption that is taking place so this is focusing on on things like the enablers based in the developed world so the you know the bankers the lawyers the real estate agents the people who are allowing a lot of the illicit financial flows of the stolen money that comes out of the developing world to be parked either in property in 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 London or in, in offshore accounts uh, or in shell companies or whatever it it might be. So understanding that better, the, the symbiotic relationship between what happens in in terms of the support for corrupt activities that takes place from outside of the traditionally corrupt countries themselves. That was one core theme. Second core theme was to look at the whole issue of promoting integrity as an approach to, to tackling corruption. An awful lot of the work on anti-corruption has focused on regulating, legislating, putting in new rules, m- more regulations, more laws, more codes of conduct, more bodies, more anti-corruption bodies, etc. Very little has focused on what do we understand by trying to promote, in some senses, the opposite of corruption. You know, what does good behaviour look like? What does it, what does acting with integrity look like in the context of public officials, for instance? And so. A second theme has been to try to emphasize the importance of understanding the, the more positive facing approach to tackling corruption than simply punishment rules, regulations, etc. And the third theme is one of getting away from the almost obsessive focus on nation states as, as the unit. You know. Of analysis for anti-corruption work, uh, the idea that you know if you're going to tackle corruption, you've got to tackle it at the level of a national anti-corruption strategy or a national plan. But instead, uh, and here again, you have very strong parallels with with SOAS. say, a very strong emphasis on on sectoral issues or on subnational issues. So, so we look both supranationally at, at the international architecture that supports corruption, and also subnationally at specific sectors. Because we are a responsive mode programme, we we have 14 projects which we selected, and they they range across those three broad themes, but specify a number of very particular areas that they're looking at, but with a very, very wide geographic range. And so whereas, obviously, the the DFID priority countries are the main focus, because this is a DFID programme, this is where the overseas development assistance spending takes place, we also have a lot of examples drawn from other parts of the world for comparative purposes, because we strongly believe that the best learning is done from comparative work rather than simply single case studies, although single case studies do have an awful lot to recommend them as well. Great, that was extremely
2: helpful for me to understand both the the theory of change and the and general framework behind those projects, I would like to pick up on one thing that you just mentioned, Paul, is that we should focus more on the positive side, the integrity, instead of focusing on, on corruption. And this is also a recent turn that the OECD took, uh, focusing more on, on integrity promotion. Mm-hmm. So do you think there is a positive trend in also those large institutions towards a better anti-corruption, let's say, approach?
3: Well, I think a, a different one. I think the, the jury remains out on whether it's a better one. Let let let's hope it is. But I think there is an increasing recognition amongst some of these major organisations, the OECD, very explicitly so, because they are now you know actively promoting an integrity supporting approach. I think the World Bank is also looking much more at this kind of approach. That's a recognition that the approaches that we've had for the last quarter century have had very disappointing results. And so if that's not working, you don't want to just keep doing the same thing. You want to find different ways of going about things. And so one of the things we've tried to do is is to identify what that looks like in practice. We've got a number of, of projects that are looking, for instance, at one project is looking at the administration of national parks in Uganda and working to see if you positively recognize Good performance on the part of people who are supposedly in revenue sharing relationships with uh, administrators if you recognize good performance and you identify good performance in terms of things like you know making sure that your your accounts are completed on time accurately and so on will that be more effective than trying to come down hard on the people who are not doing what they should be doing. So this picks up on some of the ideas behind integrity idol, for instance, where where you you positively recognise good performance in in public service. We've got another project that's looking at a similar kind of approach to trying to address uh, the way that health clinics are working in in Tanzania. So if you can actually recognise positive performance and reward that, is that going to act as a as a better incentive than than the the, the fear of being caught? if if you're doing things wrong we've got a really interesting project working with urban planners in in Cape Town and Lusaka and again trying to identify who are the key players in the urban planning landscape and how can you build a kind of a sense of integrity within those actors which moves them to to do what many people call the right thing. And that's driven in part by quite a bit of research that's been taking place over recent years, looking at things like how do kind of professional ethics, how do professional ideas influence the way that people behave in certain roles? So, for instance, there's a lot of work that suggests that the very fact that medical practitioners are trained in the way that they are and have to commit to the Hippocratic Oath means that they actually have a different mindset, a different mentality when it comes to actually understanding their their particular roles. Doesn't mean there's no corruption in medicine. Of course there is. There's huge amounts of corruption in, in the health sector. But it does mean that you're dealing with a, a different kind of framing of what people see their role as. And these, I think, are really interesting ways of, of approaching some of these problems, which we're trying to explore in a bit more depth to see if by focusing on these kinds of almost social norms type of ideas, can can we encourage positive behavior rather than simply try and stop negative behavior?
1: I mean, as a psychologist, I'm also happy uh, to hear you talking about, for example, issues like role distance, right? To what extent can you distance yourself from different roles that you take? And the last thing you said about social norms is something I wanted to ask you, you, must talk about because your project in the health sector, Paul, is led by Claudia Vascamago, right? Yes. And she, does, she uses a social norms Indeed. approach. Yeah. And in, in your uh, last bit, you talked a lot about the informality and informal rules that people follow. Given that one of the countries of SOAS ACE is Tanzania, to what extent can you learn from such a project? Do you actually actively communicate with one another? Are there insights that are useful for your work in Tanzania?
0: I think hugely. I think so. There's a lot of learning happening um, across all our different projects and and programs, not just um, within the ACE big umbrella, but we follow good research outside ACE. There's a lot of very good research happening on anti-corruption everywhere. I think there is a, a difference here in terms of how we deal with integrity issues in GIAs and so I say, maybe let me tease some of this out because Please. that would be interesting. So, we find in our countries many instances of people acting apparently with a lot of integrity and people not. But our interest is to not just stop there and say, look, let us celebrate and promote the people who are acting with integrity. As economists, we want to dig deeper into why some people are behaving in apparently good ways and others who are very similar are not. And when you start looking into that, you get some really interesting insights that the people who are breaking rules are often not people who lack integrity. They're breaking rules because there's no other way of doing business, right? So if you simply celebrate the fact that some people aren't breaking rules, you might not create enough incentive for the people who are breaking the rules to start following them if they can't. Let me give you an example of, I mean, all our projects are like this. So our comparisons are not one country with another country. Our comparisons are usually between similar people in the same sector, some of them breaking rules and some not. And then we start digging into the story of how resources that economists call rents are being captured. And what does it mean to shift more of the people into rule-following behavior? Let me give you an example of a project that we have finished on the skills sector in Bangladesh, the delivery of skills. There's a massive skills shortage in developing countries. And developing countries are spending billions of dollars in skills training. And review after review of evaluations of the impact of skills programs finds that the treatment effect of skills training programs is almost zero. In other words, if you look at how many people who go through a skills program get jobs compared to how many people who get jobs who don't go through skills programs, there's almost no difference. And yet we know there is a massive skills shortage in developing countries and countries and governments and international partners are pumping money into skills programs. One response to this has been to incentivize skills training providers to provide better skills by linking the payments they receive to outcomes. So in Bangladesh, for example, almost all private sector training providers get a third of their money when they enroll students, a third when they graduate. But the last third, which is the critical profit of the training provider, is released when the trainee gets a job. Okay. Now, the theory is that this creates very strong incentives for the training providers to create jobs. And when you look at it on paper, that's exactly what is happening. But we began to doubt this. Because we were looking at, and I told you earlier, our work is very detailed at the sectoral level. The garments industry, which is a big industry, keeps on reporting skill shortages. And then we partnered up with some development partner who were running a big skills program. And we got inside data of the skills training providers who were doing this. And we found that a lot of them were engaging in fraud by over-reporting the number of people who were getting jobs, okay? Because that was the only way they could release their payments. On the other hand, a number of skills training providers in the same program were not engaging in any fraud. So within the same skills training program run by the same development partner who were selecting training providers with the same criteria and making them go through the same tests, some were engaging in fraud quite massively I mean, in some cases, 30, 40, 50% was fraudulent, others were zero. So then we asked, how do you explain this? And we started digging deeper into the incentives of the different training providers. They had the same training skills. They were supplying skills to exactly the same level of training. They were entry-level workers to the same industry, the garments industry. So we had a controlled sample with massive variation. And then we found... An answer which no one had expected, although this is the research that I have done elsewhere on the organizational capabilities of firms on the demand side. Who were they sending their workers to? And one of the problems in developing countries is that firm capabilities vary massively, unlike advanced countries. Even in advanced countries, there are differences, but in developing countries, the differences are massive. So there are some firms in the garment industry in Bangladesh who are extremely competitive, who are very well organized, whose production lines are moving very fast, whose internal quality control is very good. These people don't want to hire unskilled workers because the unskilled worker immediately slows down their production line. But there are other firms, lots of them, whose internal organization is so bad, their production lines move so slowly, they think they have a skills shortage, But once you send a skilled worker to them, the skilled worker doesn't speed up the production line because the production line is moving slowly because the factory is badly organized. So these firms say, when the skills training provider sends the worker, actually, this is not a skilled worker. I would rather hire someone at the factory gate at a slightly lower wage because that person just does as well. What they don't realize is that the problem is not the skill of the worker, it's the organization of the factory. So we devised a test to see What are the types of firms that different skills providers were sending to? So we spent a lot of research effort getting a measure of the organizational capabilities of factories on the demand side. And this took a huge amount of computational effort because we needed to provide the evidence to show our hypothesis. And at the end of it, we showed exactly the correlation that we were expecting, that the training providers who happened to be near clusters of firms which were high capability, were sending their people out, getting they were immediately getting a job, they were doing no fraud. Those training providers which had the bad luck of being in clusters, where the firms had low capability, would do the training, their workers would go out, they wouldn't get jobs. How are they going to recover their profits? They've done their job, they do fraud. Now that comes with a massively important policy suggestion, which is not just about reducing corruption in the skill sector, but improving the treatment effect of skills as a whole. So what we are suggesting in Bangladesh, and this, I think, our result is of validity across other countries, is that skills training programs need to be complemented with investments to raise the capabilities of the firms employing the workers. And in Bangladesh, we have case studies that when you do the two things together, you have a massive increase in productivity of more than 30% in less than a year. And once you do both, not only is your skills training program not going to have fraud, it will actually generate the productivity growth that you want. And so this is an example where you have corruption driven by an underlying structural problem, which is a problem of underdevelopment and low capabilities. It's a solvable problem. And once you've done your joining up the dots, you can then say, yes, we want integrity, but you won't even have to say that too much, because we know that people, when they can make money without doing fraud, they would prefer to do it, because most people actually have integrity. It's not something you need to teach people. The people who are doing fraud in in developing countries, most of them, and I'm not talking about the big thieves and so on, which exist everywhere. Most people who do fraud in developing countries, doctors who don't turn up to hospitals and are not providing services, the skills training providers who are doing fraud, the the schools that don't do the proper um, education. There are really deep reasons for this. And if you can't address and identify the fixable reasons, so that the people who don't want to do fraud can make a living without doing the fraud, then simply talking about integrity won't work. So you need to make it such that, and this is where the economics and the political economy, and all of these things need to come together. We can't do a split-up solution, right? You need the economic analysis to find out what makes it a feasible solution for the people who don't want to do fraud to be able to operate. Only if the people who want to make a living without corruption can make a living – can you identify the really bad apples? If in your sample of people who are breaking rules are many people who are breaking rules because there is no way of them making a living without breaking the rules, you cannot do any enforcement. So this is, and I can give you lots of other examples from SOAS ACE, which is exactly of this type. Paul, you want to pick up on that?
3: Yeah, because I, don't, I mean, that is an absolutely fantastic example of, of precisely one of the key things that drives the whole ACE program, which is, Instead of focusing on corruption per se, corruption as, as the issue that you're trying to address, you, you focus on a particular problem in which corruption is manifested often as, a, as a, a symptom of what that problem is, rather than trying to just tackle the corruption. You're trying to understand what the problem is and why it leads to corrupt outcomes. And that, that's a, a really nice example of doing precisely that. What we're doing in in GIACE, so I think, is designed to work exactly on on that basis. And you know, I would say that you know none of the projects that are looking at integrity-focused approaches are simply saying, well, you know, just promote integrity and celebrate you know good behavior and leave it at that. They're all driven by this need, this this understanding that you have to look at the problem in the context of of what, how and why it's taking place, but. Approaching it from the point of view of instead of simply trying to double down on preventing behavior that you don't want, but also trying to understand, well, what are the incentives that drive people to behave in the ways that you do want? Well, then that's a much more potentially effective way of getting the right results. And I think, you know, what what Mushtak has just explained is actually a very good way of expressing that. Where I would take issue, I think, is the idea that, you know, most people innately have integrity i think you know that is very much driven by the circumstances in which you find yourself and you know if you are in a situation in which you know essentially dishonesty is is the prevailing norm then you are more likely to operate in 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 ways that are consistent with that simply because that's how you've been socialized into behaving and indeed there's been some really interesting recent research particularly by one of my colleagues simon gechter on you know honesty yeah. in relation to those kinds of norms and socialization experiences that, that people have so i think we do need to understand you know what drives behavior in a much more sophisticated way it's not it's not simply a, a question of incentives and you know if it were simply that you could tweak the the incentives and people would respond in in the kind of the, the classical economist sense we'd have solved the problem ages ago. It's much more complex. Than that.
1: No, exactly. I think it's really interesting that you both picked up on, on something that behavioral research, like Simon Gechter's studies, but also others who basically are starting to adopt an approach that's called behavioral ethics so instead of telling people what's right and wrong you just observe what they do when they face an ethical dilemma and what the research by Simon Gechter shows is that indeed if people are exposed to rule violations they are breaking rules themselves more frequently but as, as Mushtaq said very few people go all the way right so there is this very famous notion that people want to have the cake and eat it too they want to feel good about themselves but at the same time, if possible, you know, bend the rules, break the rules to, to their own profit. So I think it's very interesting that you both picked up on it, because at the same time, if the incentive structures are shaped in a, in a clever way such that they are aligned with integrity, I do think there is an interesting point that this could really help people to basically unleash their own, let's say, integrity potential. It's- That was part one of the podcast with Paul Haywood and Mushta Khan. Let me tell you a short personal anecdote why this was a very special episode for me. When I started to get interested in corruption almost 10 years ago, I, I searched podcast directories for the keyword corruption. As one of the few hits, I found an interview on Development Drums. In it, Owen Bader interviews Danny Kaufman and Mushta Khan. The two go head to head. It provided much food for thought and inspiration for me to conduct research on corruption and eventually actually led to the creation of this podcast because we wanted to provide people who are interested in corruption some audio input on it. I'm very grateful for having been able to interview Mushtaq a few weeks ago myself. All of this is also possible due to the support of you, our listeners, and our Patreons. If you like the content, please leave us a review on wherever you get your podcasts or share the content, tell your friends about it. This really helps us to reach even more people. Kickback is a joint production of the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. Thanks for listening.